0: About four weeks ago, Scott started this sermon series called Difficult Words. His goal was to focus our attention on the words of the Bible that we would probably much rather skip over than unpack. The first Sunday was the word woe from Isaiah. He helped us see that, as Isaiah points out, we are destined for death as a result of our sins. That until our heart cries out, woe is me, we will never come to repentance. The second week brought the difficult word of cursed. We discovered that a cursed life is one of pride and trust in our own understanding, that this life will never lead to bear fruit. Scott reminded us that a blessed life is one of trust in the Lord, even if this leads us through a dark valley. It's a blessing because God's circumstances for us are always for our own good. Last week, he introduced the difficult word love. He encouraged us to love one another just as God loves us, and to even go a step further and love our enemies just as God loves his. The fourth and final difficult word we encounter today is gospel. On May 6, 1994, Pastor Roy Ratcliffe received a phone call that changed his life forever. As a pastor, he was used to getting phone calls all hours of the day and night. So the phone ringing wasn't anything out of the ordinary. However, the person on the other end was. His friend Rob, who happened to also be a pastor and who also hardly ever called him, was asking if he could handle an urgent matter for him. Rob had received a phone call from another pastor named Curtis who specialized in prison ministry. Curtis had received word that a prison close to Rob had a prisoner there that wanted to be baptized into the Christian faith. Curtis was a couple states away from this prison and realizing that the distance would prevent him from effectively ministering to this prisoner, he asked Rob, who only pastored about 40 miles from the prison, if he would do it. Unfortunately though, Rob was leaving for a conference and he was not able to follow through with the request. Understanding how important of a matter this is, he reached out to his friend, Roy, who also lived close to the prison, to ask if he would be willing to assume this responsibility. Roy was not so quick to answer, though. You see, this prisoner was famous for the crimes he committed. And understanding that this baptism request could possibly be a hoax, Roy knew that if he agreed, he would have to meet immediately in person to determine the authenticity of this request. Roy was well aware of how his congregation and family might respond to this news once they found out who he would be meeting with. However, Roy had to find out if this man did, in fact, want to be baptized. So, having no experience in working with prisoners, he reluctantly agreed to meet with the famous criminal. After meeting with the man, Roy found out that he truly did want a baptism. Curtis, along with a woman from another church, had sent this criminal a Bible study course. Upon completing it, He found intense remorse in the sins he had committed. This prisoner knew that unless he repented and became born again, he would spend the rest of eternity in hell. It was for this reason that Roy agreed to baptize this hurting and burden-laden man immediately. Roy met with this man for the first time on April 20th, 1994. And on May 10th, 1994, a prisoner who would never step foot outside the prison walls again became a free man in Christ through the waters of baptism and faith in Jesus. On May 10, 1994, Roy no longer was in the presence of a man destined for hell. Roy was in the presence of a fellow brother in Christ. Roy knew that this man was ashamed of his past. He knew that this prisoner believed in the power of the cross and the atoning sacrifice made on his behalf. Roy knew that the gospel had saved this man's life. We read from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, you must be born again the wind blows wherever it pleases you hear its sound but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going so it is with everyone born of the Spirit how can this be Nicodemus asked you are Israel's teacher said Jesus and do you not understand these things very truly I tell you we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen but still you people do not accept our testimony I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who comes from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of god father we pray that you open our eyes to our sinful ways let us hear your restorative and peaceful message from your word that is so crucial for us to hear help us to remember your love and grace as we come to humbly see ourselves for who we really are allow your word to soak into our hearts and penetrate our souls break down our false sense of hope in ourselves, and restore the everlasting hope in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We don't actually see the word gospel appear anywhere in our text this morning. However, this text is the gospel nonetheless. In fact, it can even be referred to as the gospel in a nutshell. We hear the word gospel a lot, whether it comes from this pulpit, or on TV, or from talking amongst ourselves. Perhaps you have heard the word gospel the most when it is contrasted with the word law, law versus gospel, the two main points of the Bible. It's important to know that unlike the gospel, the law is hopeless. The law's main purpose is to reveal to us our shortcomings, to show us that we can never measure up to God's holy standards. Woe is me is the only proper response we should have when we think of the law. It destroys our very core and leaves us in the depths of despair, just like it did to Isaiah when he was in the presence of God. Isaiah was crushed by the law, but found purpose in God's calling in his life. Jeremiah tells us that without the gospel, we are left cursed like a shrub in the desert, who is left to wither up when the heat comes. Cursed are the ones who put their trust in their own hearts, but blessed is the one who trusts in the satisfying work of the gospel. The love we read about in Luke last week is the purest form of the gospel, as Scott noted. It frees us from the bondage we have to the law, even if we deserve what the law demands. The reason law and gospel are so dissimilar is because the law kills and the gospel brings us to life. The law says cursed and the gospel says blessed. The law says eye for an eye and the gospel says turn the other cheek. So as you can see, The Gospel can be found in each of the difficult words we have looked at so far, but it doesn't stop there. Actually, we find the Gospel in the entirety of the Bible. However, you may still be wondering, what is the Gospel? The English word Gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. The first four books of the Bible, sorry, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are called the Gospels. They all give an account of the life and death of Jesus. So is the gospel defined as the good news of the life and death of Jesus? Simply put, yes. But we should not get the idea that Gileon is a simple concept to grasp. On the contrary, the gospel of Jesus is quite difficult for us to understand, apply and live out. Our sin will always prevent the full weight of this doctrine to be felt. But even with our sin-stained vision, we are able to, with the help of the Holy Spirit, draw three realizations from this gospel in a nutshell text that helps us better understand the good news of Jesus. The first realization is that the gospel is mysterious. Upon looking at verses one through 13, we encounter a dialogue between a member of the Sanhedrin named Nicodemus and Jesus. Nicodemus, knowing what he has to risk by being caught associated with Jesus, comes to him at night perplexed by what Jesus is teaching. It's accurate to say that this Pharisee is curious about what he doesn't understand, and maybe more specifically, why he doesn't understand it. Jesus, knowing this man's heart, gives him an explanation that only further confuses Nicodemus. This is typical of Jesus as we have seen before and as we will continue to see. It's just another example of how fallen we really are in sin and how blinded we are because of that. But I don't think we should criticize Nicodemus here for being confused. After all, the term born again that Jesus uses is a term that we have heard quite often in modern Christianity. However, for Nicodemus, this is a term that he obviously was not at all familiar with. So it's understandable why he can't grasp what Jesus said. We should pay more attention to Nicodemus' attitude in regards to these confusing terms instead of the fact that he was confused. What does he do when he doesn't understand? He asks questions. He engages with Jesus. He puts his pride aside and humbles himself before the Lord. Let me just stop here and say that this Pharisee, associated with the group of people that Jesus would harshly condemn and speak poorly of regularly, this Pharisee got it right for once. For once in the Bible, we look to this Pharisee as an example of how to respond to this mysterious message that Jesus is teaching. Rather than letting anger and pride keep us from the truth, we would do well to engage more with the word, as Nicodemus did with Jesus, to find answers. How many hours a day do we waste away when instead we could be soaking in the word of God, mining into a deeper relationship with him? Believe me, this question is a struggle of mine just as much as it is for you. As Christians, we must do better. Our lives and our neighbors' lives depend on it. Nicodemus' life depended on it, whether he knew it or not. We don't know if this conversation between the two ended at verse 13, or if John just stopped recording what was said. What we do know, though, is that Nicodemus got answers to his questions that have been used as the foundation for the Christian faith to this day. We learn the two requirements needed to become a Christian or to become born again as Jesus calls it from the questions that Nicodemus asks. The first requirement is that we must be born of water and the second is that we must be born of spirit. Spirit with a capital S as you can see in your Bible. Pay attention to that distinction because it's important. We know that being born of water means baptism. Nicodemus could have been familiar with this concept as well due to the work of John the Baptist. Where Nicodemus gets confused and where we get lost as well is in the second requirement, being born of the Spirit, capital S. Jesus is telling us that due to our sinful nature, we can never see or enter the kingdom of God unless we become a new creation or born again. This is not a physical change in appearance as Nicodemus understood it as, but a change in spirit. Verse 6, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. We humans are incapable of securing the heavenly kingdom on our own. Flesh gives birth to flesh. We will always reproduce sin and death. However, through the waters of baptism and through the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes into our heart and regenerates or recreates a new spirit in us. This new birth of spirit is done when the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone leads us to the cross so that our old sinful self can be put to death. Only then are we ready to repent and receive the grace of God through Jesus Christ. This is a mystery to us. As Jesus says, the Holy Spirit moves like the wind. We know it's there very well in North Dakota sometimes, but we can't see where it's going or where it's been. Nicodemus was Israel's teacher. He studied the Old Testament. He was the PhD of the day, and yet he still failed to see this. Jesus reminds us that if we can't understand these earthly things, like the wind, how will we ever understand heavenly things? The gospel is mysterious because we aren't Jesus, as he so clearly points out in verse 13. Only the Son of Man knows heaven and its answers. This is why we trust in the Word, in Jesus, and not in our own understanding. While on this earth, we won't fully comprehend the work of God as the Holy Spirit, but let that only be a motivation to constantly be yearning to know more about the mysterious ways of our Lord. Let us be like that Pharisee, Nicodemus, who risked it all that he may better understand the mysterious gospel. The second realization of the gospel is that it is a gift. This is a very tough realization for us to depend on, but this shouldn't come as a surprise to us. We humans are hardwired and trained to act as if nothing in this life is free. If we want something, we have to go out and earn it. After all, that is part of the American dream, isn't it? Don't get me wrong, we are blessed as Americans to be able to create our own success, to work hard for what we want, A word of caution though, that line of thinking can become our worst enemy very quickly when it comes to the gospel. Verse 14 is Jesus referencing Moses and the Israelites from the Old Testament. Israelites became impatient and ungrateful while they were in the wilderness. God had saved his people from the hand of Pharaoh and the Israelites were convinced that he had done so just so he could watch them die in the desert. Don't be quick to judge we're prone to wander just as they are as a punishment for their ungrateful hearts God sends snakes to torment and even kill some of the people this leads them to feeling remorse for their actions so God tells Moses to build a bronze serpent on a pole and set it upright so that if anyone is bitten they may look upon this bronze pole and live so quick recap Israelites question God's promise God sends snakes to hurt and kill them as judgment for their wandering hearts. Israelites become scared and repent. God saves them. I want you to look at this. Do you see anywhere in this short story where the Israelites offer anything good to God? Do they display any actions that warrant being saved? Sure, they repent, but only because they don't want to die. Even their repentance is fueled by selfishness. Think about that. They repent because of their desire for self-preservation, not because they love God. Do we do the same? How often is our repentant heart only the byproduct of self-preservation instead of our love for God? Are we repenting only because we've been caught red-handed in sin, or are we repenting out of true sorrow for our actions against God? God saves the Israelites purely based on who He is in His glory, and nothing based on what they possess. The bronze snake is a gift. So is the case with Jesus to us. Jesus tells Nicodemus that the son of man came to be lifted up on the cross, just as the bronze pole was lifted up by Moses as a gift of eternal life to those who would believe. John then goes on to say that God so loved this world that he gave, he gifted, eternal life to us through his son, not because we deserved it, but because he loves us. I don't think we can drive home this point enough. God loves us. We don't love God. We love sin. And even so, God made a way to save us. The gospel is a gift, and I would even say an unfair gift at that. We are so quick to throw that fair, unfair card when we have been wronged. I don't deserve this because it's unfair. But perhaps we need to be reminded of what it looks like when the tables are turned on us, when we are reminded of what is fair and unfair. A fair gift to us would be hell. That's what we deserve for our deeds. We are sinners, the product of flesh giving birth to flesh. An unfair gift to us, Is the Holy Spirit regenerating a new life in us and giving us heaven. The Spirit giving birth to Spirit. An unfair gift to us would be sending a Savior into the world when the world was still sinful and saving that sinful world so that they may spend eternity in their father's arms. Romans 5 8 tells us that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us. Christ didn't die for us when we had earned it. Christ died for us when we were already dead. This is what an unfair gift is, and the more we are reminded of this scandalous, unfair gift, the better off we are. Without Christ's atoning work on the cross, we are nothing. The idea without Christ should horrify us. It should keep us wide awake at night, deeply disturbed by its meaning. Without Christ means that we stand condemned before God, as we read about in this text. It means that we are as good as in hell. Church, hear me when I say this. God sent his son into the world to gift us with salvation while we were turned away from God, while we were sinners, and while we were already condemned. God sent his son so that the only person on this earth that didn't deserve God's wrath and punishment bore it anyway on our behalf. Jesus paid it all, while we could never offer anything in return. It should be incredibly humbling to us to know that even receiving the gift of the gospel comes from nothing we do and everything God does. God pursues us. We don't pursue God. As we discovered earlier, we are only ready to receive the gospel after the Holy Spirit breaks down our hard hearts and shows us our failings. It's humbling to know that we are so dead in our sin that we can't even obtain the very thing we need to save it on our own. I'll say that again. We are so dead in our sin that we can't even obtain the very thing we need to save it on our own. That without divine intervention we are lost forever and we would never see the face of God. We have to know this is true of ourselves. If the gospel depends on our works, it is no longer good news. The beautiful realization that the gospel is a gift comes only from us believing that we offered nothing to receive it. The gospel is mysterious. The gospel is a gift. And the third realization is that the gospel is vital. Roy Ratcliffe knew that a newly converted Christian, such as this prisoner who he just baptized, would need weekly counseling and ministering so that his faith would not fade. It was for this reason that Roy insisted on meeting with this man every Wednesday for an hour. And to Roy's surprise, this man agreed. And so began a journey exploring the vital message of the gospel together. It quickly became apparent to Roy that the man he was ministering to had many questions about his newfound faith. This was good, though. Roy saw this man's passion and interest in the Bible strengthen each time they met. And as his passion increased, so did his sorrow and regret of his past. Roy had to always remind him that because of the vital gospel, his past was dead and he was a new creation. Roy continued to meet with this man for seven months until an announcement on the radio brought the meetings to an end. This prisoner who Roy had come to admire, honestly, was dead. He had been killed by another prisoner while they were cleaning a bathroom. Roy was devastated and his head was spinning. Roy saw the two of them being lifelong partners in the gospel together, each ministering to the other in their own special way. This dream was shattered on November 28, 1994. All Roy had of this man now was a thanksgiving card Roy had received from him in his lasting memory. Roy knew that he would see this man again in paradise. The vital message of the gospel had turned this condemned sinner into a saint in Christ John tells us that our verdict is clear left to ourselves we hate the light and love the darkness for this reason alone we will never come to the light by our own will we will run away from the light knowing that it will expose our evil it's because of this verdict that the gospel becomes vital it's because of this verdict That we will never fully understand the ways of our heavenly father it's because of this verdict that we are condemned but god but god showing his love for his people pursues us while we run from him he brings light into the darkness so that we may see the truth he brings to life the dead and creates in us a beacon of hope that points straight to jesus john says this is so That it may be seen plainly, what has been done in the sight of God, or what has been carried out by God, if you read the ESV, in us. What has been done in us is from God. This message of the gospel brings hope to the hopeless. It makes the condemned righteous. It makes the cursed blessed. It loves us when we are not worth loving. We will never earn it, understand it, or seek it on our own, but it saves us nonetheless. The gospel meets us where we are in life hear that again the gospel meets us where we are in life it doesn't wait until we clean up our life and then enters in it looks at us in our broken decaying state and showers us with the love and mercy of our father roy often got asked if he thought this prisoner he mentored was a sincere convert roy always answered the same he knew without a doubt that Jeffrey Dahmer from Milwaukee, Wisconsin was a Christian. Not because of what Roy had done in Jeffrey's life, but because of what the gospel did. The world, us, we saw a serial killer who killed 17 men. God saw his child. The world saw a cannibal. God saw his child. The world saw a homosexual necrophiliac. God saw his child. The world saw what some might consider the epitome of evil. God saw his child. God pursued Jeffrey Dahmer when he was a sinner covered in filth, rotting away in his prison cell for the rest of his life. God looked at him and saw someone worth saving. This is the difficult nature of the gospel. This is the unfairness of the gospel. We see a man like Jeffrey Dahmer and can conclude for ourselves that he should never be worthy of salvation. That is true. He wasn't worthy, but neither are we. The fact that Jeffrey Dahmer was saved by God's grace should not bother us, as it did so many once they found out he was a Christian. One man went so far as to say, if Jeffrey Dahmer is going to heaven, then I don't want to be there. Shame on him, and shame on us. As if this unfair gift should be for us and us only. During Jeffrey's trial and even after his death, the question of his mental sanity was brought up. A lot of different psychologists with a lot of different expertise examined the demeanor and actions of Jeffrey. They all came up with the same diagnosis. Jeffrey Dahmer was completely sane. To be considered legally sane, or in other words, to be tried in court as a sane person, you have to meet two requirements. The first is that you have to be able to determine right from wrong. And the second is that you are able to understand the consequences of your actions. Jeffrey knew what he was doing was wrong. And he knew where his crimes would get him if he was caught. Jeffrey Dahmer was sane. To put it bluntly, he was just like you and I. This should bother us. Not the fact that he went to heaven, but the fact that he was a sane human. This means that the only thing that plagued Jeffrey Dahmer and led him to carry out these horrific actions is the same thing that plagues us. It means that sin is sin, and even the tiniest little lie keeps us the same amount of distance away from God as the crimes of Jeffrey Dahmer did. This is difficult, and this is frustrating, and it may even infuriate some, but it is the truth. While we were still sinners, Christ came to save us. While we were still sinners, God's grace broke through the darkness and brought us to the light, the light that we would run from otherwise. This mysterious, unfair, vital gift should bring us to our knees and pour in our eyes to the cross. This difficult gospel should completely crush any hope of salvation in ourselves, in our works, and show us the hope in Christ and in Christ alone. When we realize how lost we are, the gospel is only that much sweeter. Christ is knocking on your door you're hiding from him you're filthy and scared and crushed from the weight of this world but he wants to come in anyway open the door and let him in let his spirit fill your heart and receive the gift he has given you believe in jesus's good news this morning and for those of you who are in christ for those who believe what christ has done on your behalf hang on to that hope Don't let your wandering heart lead you back into the darkness. Instead, let Christ's light continue to shine bright so the world may see what God has done. Praise God for the gospel. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for sending your son so that the only person on this earth who didn't deserve your wrath and punishment. it anyway for us father so that while we were dead in sin you provided a way out you created a way so that we can be with you for eternity it's difficult but also comforting to know that we don't pursue you you pursue us and you continue to pursue us until our work is completed may your spirit lead us to the cross and regenerate in us a new life in Christ. Amen.